Welcome to the Placing Culture Podcast. I'm Sean Houston. On Placing Culture, I feature conversations with people doing cultural geographic work at the intersections of the arts, sciences, and humanities. In this episode, I talk to Stephen Daniels, Professor of Cultural Geography and Director of the AHRC Landscape and Environment Program at the University of Nottingham, and Lucy Veal, Research Fellow in the School of Geography at the University of Nottingham, about their short film, Imagining Change, Coastal Conversations, and related article, Imagining Coastal Change, Reflections on Making a Film, which was published in Cultural Geographies in 2014. Well, Lucy and Steve, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about your work. And thanks for having us. Thank you. I think to start the conversation, that uh, summary of the film and also um, a discussion of the circumstances under which it got made would be a good place to start. So, Steve, if you could get us going by addressing that. Sure. I'll talk about the uh, the bigger picture first before we come to the uh, the pictures in the film. It's really a requirement of all academic research in in the UK now that there's an element of public outreach or or public engagement so that has to be built into uh, any any government funded research and this was part of a uh, the term is impact that's the term that's used here and we had a follow-on fellowship to the AHRC landscape and environment program which was a five-year program and the idea of the fellowship was to try and draw together some of the strands on the fellowship and also to produce output as they say that's uh, to try and disseminate uh, our findings and the issue was to really look for an opportunity to do that so we had a steering committee and there were a number of issues coming up and one was uh, a large environment conference what was it called planet under pressure planet under pressure okay that was it and there was an opportunity for us to showcase some of the program research that had gone on uh, in in the landscape and environment program so the advice from one of our steering committee who'd worked with the production company was to was to make a short film in which we would choose some of the key investigators uh, on the program and interview them on site. It seemed to us important to produce a, a landscape film on site and get them to talk really about some of the issues that went into the research or the kind of work that they were doing. And the, the key message was that is that, which I hope comes out in the film, is that we didn't want the arts and humanities just to be a kind of communication device for larger questions that had already been sorted out by environmentalists. We actually wanted to 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 put the arts and humanities at, at the center of of certain research questions and, and how these issues could be thought about. So it, it, it was trying to move, move the, the cultural side to the center, the center of those, those debates. So that was, that was the background of it. And the way that the film is structured is that we move in different parts of Britain on different coastal areas 
and we talked to uh, investigators on site and we were advised well lucy can talk more about this but we were particularly advised by the film production company that a lot of talking talking was important faces were important hands were important and the landscape would sort of take care of itself so if you notice in the film there's a lot of conversation we called it coastal conversations so the the idea was is that the issue about imagining change and the way that was approached would come through a fairly free-range conversation between me as the the peripatetic uh, interviewer as it were and the uh, and the three people doing different kinds of work in in different kinds of places so that's really the background and and that's how the film is shapes up I think the film is effective in making that connection that's not just these projects are about academic understanding, but also have some value for, I guess, more practical purposes, you know, trying to understand the places in which people live in a way that might enhance people's lives or connection to the landscape. I thought that that came through, especially with the discussion in the third segment with Simon Reed yeah. and the, the mapping project. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was a key part of it is that yeah, that map that he originally produced, it it really it had a lot of input and and the way that maps provide a way of of people picturing a place and also something he was particularly concerned with as as you see in the film is that so much of this information is very hard for people to grasp and he found that maps and map reading provide a. Uh, a kind of common or a community frame for these kind of issues, particularly for people who live in these particular places. So, so there was that element of participation to that one. Although I also think we wanted to emphasize a particular kind of expertise that uh, scholars might bring to these places. You mentioned that the requirement for public outreach yeah in these research programs. How effective do you think that requirement has been in fulfilling its goals? And is that something that has enhanced your own, your own work in other ways? Yeah, yeah. It, it comes in different forms. Uh, there's sort of strong impact, <laughs> as they say. And, and that's the most tricky. And I'm not sure that we designed the film with this in mind because we didn't come up with a way of assessing it. But strong impact in UK is the sort of cancer cure model of research. It, it's research that is meant to have a transformative impact on people's lives. It's a very, very high standard, especially for the social sciences and, and humanities. Our funding uh, body, HRC, was, was working with um, a slightly more, more um, flexible model of uh, of impact or, or engagement, which was that you should you should put it out there uh, in a form which would enable it to disseminate as widely as possible. And if you could get evidence of the thing being used in a particular way, let's say used in teaching, which we've heard it being used as, uh, or used in various other ways. That would be fine. You wouldn't. You wouldn't need the the harder evidence that actually it had changed lives. You mentioned working with uh, producers 
giving you advice. And I wonder if you could talk about the decision to work with an outside sure. production yeah. company um, and also how that collaboration went. Yeah, certainly. Well, as Steve said, it was our really uh, conversations with our um, advisory board that got us thinking about making a film. And one of the members of that board, Ben Cowell, works for the National Trust. Um, and they had some experience of making these short films. And recently they'd um, worked with a company called Nice and Serious, who were based in London and um, kind of very fairly young company who specialise in uh, making short films about ethical and environmental issues. And they all have kind of degrees in environmental science and that kind of area. So we thought we'd, you know, we'd have a conversation with them and see what they thought, whether they'd be interested in the project and whether they'd be able to work to our budget and our timescales, which were both kind of relatively modest in terms of funds and then a quite quick turnaround. So we only had kind of about six months, I think, from originally coming up with the idea to screening the film at the Planet Under Pressure conference. So I think I originally con contacted them by email and then had a telephone conversation with Ben Mika, who came, became the director of the film. We circulated some materials on the projects that we thought we wanted to feature so that they had a better idea of, of what might be the content of the film um, and then went down to London to meet at their offices and they kind of showed us around their working space. It was you know, a really new experience for, for us as well so we didn't really know anything about them or how these things worked. But we really liked what we saw in London. They were really friendly, really approachable, um, and really keen to work with us. It was a new challenge for them, I think. They'd worked mainly kind of more on the science side of things before. So I think the main challenge for them was kind of getting the, the arts and humanities message. We worked very much as a team in writing and drafting the script for the film, and also putting together the itinerary, um, and then talking to our collaborators as well. So they really advised us on what we should use and how we should structure the film in terms of the conversations with these three individuals on site. I don't know if you've got anything to add, Steve, on um, working with them. Yeah, I mean, basically, we put ourselves in their hands. This is not something that uh, especially senior academics are very good at. We're used to a good deal of... Uh, executive control over what we do our view was is that you know they they knew how to make films and also it wasn't cheap i mean there's a sense that there's a view out there particularly among geographers because filmmaking seems so easy you know there's so many online tools that you can use and we just went for quite high production value so it it what did it cost about ten ten thousand more, more I think. Once all everyone's expenses for yeah. travel, and it was more like twenty-five. More like twenty twenty-five thousand pounds for a for a twelve-minute film. Now, some of my academic colleagues kind of steam comes out of their ears when they hear that. But actually, it's really good value if you think about how quickly you know you think about the lead time of a lot of academic publications and how quickly you can turn it round, and also the kind of formats that they got it in. So the production values are actually pretty good. If there was something that we were trying to push all the time is that we wanted the film to ex express some of the artistry 
of that we were trying to get across. So it wasn't purely a, a documentary film. Is that we wanted the film to have a kind of evocation too, and we we, we got that. There was a good deal of exchange, but you know it was a very very steep learning curve for mm. both of us in terms of you know script writing, particularly that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and they advised us on what was possible, really, because we wanted to showcase some of Mike's performance yeah. script, for example, and um, to add in some archive images and um, Simon kind of at work, and that was overlaid on top of the script, really. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, I mean, some things we could get to work and some things, you know, we couldn't, but basically we wanted a film... With a you know with a good deal of I mean there's a good deal of continuity in it you know we listen we listened to them a lot didn't we in, yeah in <laughs> and, and there were a lot of takes I mean you know it was very very cold uh, for Britain uh, extremely cold and uh, and we had to film quite quickly and move from location to location. Well, I think we were asked to kind of rephrase things quite a lot and yeah. shorten things down a lot. I think I don't know if we had an idea of how long the film would be, but it definitely was condensed. This kind of coastal walk thing has become a bit of a kind of paradigm in uh, in British filmmaking. So you know, I think audiences in the UK used used to seeing somebody wrapped up walking along a clifftop. Um, that's quite a, you know, kind of, I'm not sure if that's true in the States, but that's quite a kind of conventional, you know, we wanted a kind of way into this that would take people into the film who weren't necessarily from an arts and humanities background. And also a way, I think, that would make familiar something, for example, like performance, right, mm -hmm. or, or new narratives, which can be quite recondite and quite arcane. So... We wanted to get that across. And I think we were pleased we had Simon in his map and his boat because that uh, segment really, I think, nails the film for us. This discussion raises two other points. Like your experience here, when I've worked with film and video, it's been very difficult to get things done effectively uh, just working by myself, even though, as you say, Steve, there's kind of this image of digital technology making the one-person film studio possible. Usually you end up at some point just not having the skill set or having the time to do something. And that makes the experience different, I think, than how work is typically done in the social sciences and humanities, which is more individualistic, where collaboration, I think, is often kind of elective. And oftentimes your collaborators may not even be people who have your same interests in the material, but what they do offer is some kind of skill. And I, I'm wondering if Either of you could reflect on, you know, what this was like compared to, you know, maybe what you typically do when you're when you're working on a project. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're definitely right. I think we're both quite fortunate in that recent years anyway, we have done a number of projects which have involved working as a team um, in a collaborative way and drawing on kind of these new expertise and sharing our expertise with different groups so we both we made the film and then we went on to work on a, an exhibition in North Norfolk at a National Trust property and that was kind of a similar experience in working with some exhibition designers and I'm sure we took something from the filmmaking process to that in that it was really good to work with people who had 
the relevant expertise and experience to share with us, as well as just giving them good materials. I mean, I don't think, you know, we knew that we couldn't make the film ourselves. Neither of us have the the expertise. But it was, yeah, really valuable. Um, But yes, you're right, most of the time, day to day, I'm in the archive working by myself. (laughs) I guess guess the point is if somebody has said, look, there's the opportunity to make a film. If, if they said, look, there's an opportunity to do an exhibition, we would have done that. It is that there wasn't, I don't think, anything in particular about film. I think we were looking for a mode of a medium, which was teamworking, and in order to get this across. I think it was a condition of many of the, um, the grants on the program that I directed for a number of years that... They, there were teams and they were interdisciplinary and there was an element of practice as well as academic interpretation to them. So in a sense, this the funding organisation has, has encouraged this. And also geographers have been very good in getting funding out of this research council because I think geographers, more than most social sciences, certainly more than most humanities people, are used, are used to working in teams and used to and, and, and being fairly flexible about disciplinary boundaries they're not quite so um i mean they're territorial in a in a geographical way but i don't think in a in a knowledge way so i think that um lucy's right we we went on to do an exhibition which we've written about in a similar kind of way to the way we wrote about the film it which also included a film element in the exhibition so you know i think we both consider you know these to be multimedia public presentations rather than thinking very um, in a specialist way about, about film necessarily. And in both cases, we used the expertise of a, of a, of a studio, yeah. uh, which we, we paid for. And I, I mean, I think the other, the other thing it's always made me think about is that, you know, as you say, social scientists and artists and uh, humanities people tend to work on their own. But what they don't realize is how much of what they do, including producing books, is teamwork, whether acknowledged or not. And I think there's a difference in degree, not of kind, between an exhibition, a film, and a really good popular geography book with pictures in it. I'm not fetishizing film at all uh, in this. Um, I think it was a really good vehicle for the message that we were trying to get across. I mean, I think on the question of how a film is one way to make academic work more accessible, in the article in Cultural Geographies, you also mentioned making choices like having longer takes. You know, watching a 60-minute film, I'm sure, it seems more um, doable for a wider public than trying to fish an article out of a database and then taking an hour to to figure that out. Um, But then the other side of that is you can take that and maybe push some of those expectations a little bit and still have a kind of critical engagement with with your audience. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, all the stuff on the takes was something that that wasn't something that we realized. And I mean, there's a lot of post-production in that film, as you probably realize too. Uh, And what you could do with just images, letting those letting those uh, images work, the film turned out to be slightly longer than we planned, didn't it? I mean, not. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we 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 wanted to. I think I think we said this in the article. We wanted to make it that people could you know view online uh, you know, 
so it will work in a series of series of contexts. Yeah, and I think as you're saying, Sean, just because it's kind of available doesn't mean doesn't necessarily mean that it's accessible. But we hope that we've kind of translated some of the academic research that had been completed under the programme and into different sort of more visually appealing forms. And I think it it really helps seeing each of the researchers in the places that they are researching, living working in and that just helps yeah, make that connection absolutely but also we didn't want to dumb it down at all but i mean we, so i deliberately kept in certain kind of terms so in the first uh, interview caitlin de Silvi, who's quite theoretical in her work uses the term experimental narration and i wanted that in because i wanted to show how the arts and humanities aren't just a kind of low-grade com- form of communication of higher expressed truths but have has its own conceptual vocabulary which i think people need to hear about so we could have just talked about storytelling and that seems to be the inclination in geography but I, I i wanted some technical terms to be in there i didn't want all the technical terms to be scientific terms um in the article you highlight a few issues that strike me as being ones that you wouldn't normally encounter when doing traditional forms of writing. For example, uh, you mentioned concerns about the Lincolnshire location essentially not being very pretty, which I can't imagine giving a second thought to if I were writing a, a book or an article. And then, then there's also the question of music and how to include material like that in the film. And if you're going to do that, how are you going to do that? And that also strikes me as being a kind of choice that you don't really have to confront normally. Um, And I wonder if you guys could reflect on making those kinds of choices where you're maybe pulled into a creative area that you're not really accustomed to working in. Yeah, I'll I'll just reply on Lincolnshire and uh, Lucy can do with them. The thing with the Lincolnshire project came out, or the Lincolnshire section came out of a project that was performative and deliberately almost willfully non-visual right so we had the issue of how do you communicate uh, a kind of non-visual practice in a a visual format right (laughs) so we started off with this very cute piece of cornwall with a harbor and everything else and we're suddenly moving to lincolnshire and thankfully it snowed because it at least gave the landscape some kind of definition so that so that was useful but it was a it was a real challenge because the guy who was there the performance guy was somebody who is sort of interestingly suspicious about two visual ways of trying to get to know landscape although he's a field worker we were trying to get across um a a sort of not you know not non-scenic view i'm not sure how successful it was i think what was successful about that is that he is himself an actor as well as a producer and 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 he talks very well so we so 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 that was useful but that was always going to be a challenge uh, that particular thing and you're right there would be no problem if you were writing about it but we had to show it and is that kind of how it ended up in the middle Good question. Well, I think, yeah, it's also maybe worth saying that I think the filmmakers found it quite challenging as well. They went, they were there slightly earlier than we were, and they kind of 
did a kind of afternoon of testing out the the shots. I think they found it difficult working in that landscape and with the snow. Um, it's in the middle, really, because of the order that we made uh, our film and the journey that we made. So we went to Cornwall first and then went on to, to Lincolnshire and then to Suffolk. And I think it was just really availability of everybody yeah but i think i think you're right i think it's in the, i don't think it would have worked at the beginning or the end because it needed i think it needed to be bookended by those two others because it would have been very hard to start very hard to start off with with that yes because you needed to hook people in with martin cove right um so i th i think thinking back we never ever thought we were going to start with that and the, the film production company had a real problem with the location. They said they really didn't know how they were going to make it work. I don't think they realised how, what, what, quite how it would be as well before they got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't an obvious kind of scenic outlook. I mean, we found one, but it, it, it was tricky. And then the other example was the music. I think we were very much guided if I remember correctly, by the Nice and Serious team, who um, we sort of asked the questions. We were very naive. We didn't really know how much music cost, um, whether we could get someone to record something for us. So in the end, the, the main music the, the here in the film just comes from a stock library, and we left it to them to choose. We liked it, I think. Yeah, I had all kinds of ideas about the music with no idea of how much it would cost. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in the, the music is, it, you're right, it's, it, I mean, it's a fairly minimalist kind of thing. But we were just advised that, that, that if we wanted to go for any other kind of music, when we've done music with exhibitions, we've been able to take a different track. I mean, we've actually had it specially transcribed and recorded uh, for exhibitions. But for, for the film, it was just going to prove too difficult and too expensive. And, and the, the, the big thing for us is that we, we just wanted to make sure we had continuity between the three, mm. between the th between the th three locations. I'm not sure that people are, are people aware of the music? I don't know. I don't know. I was just thinking there are some other kind of the other audio in there. Some of it is drawn from Mike's performance work, Warplands, which yeah. we had already been recorded. So he works alongside a musician called John Hardy. Yeah. And um, so you get some of that soundtrack. Yeah, no, you well. are. Yeah, you're getting the performance soundtrack yeah. in, in, in that segment. Yeah, yeah, you are. That's true. It sounds like, in addition to the film, you've done work on exhibitions, which that kind of work seems like we're in a moment right now with cultural geographers in particular collaborating with artists, collaborating with other kinds of creators, or venturing into new media themselves. And I'm wondering what you think about, you know, what is it that's driving this desire to sort of try different ways of doing research and engaging with place and landscape? Yeah, I think for us, the opportunities have really extended and it's been the research council's emphasis on working with non-academic organizations that has kind of led to these different outputs and um, so particularly um, for myself and Steve we've worked on a couple of projects with the National Trust now who are very much thinking about their audience and we have to 
um, think about their audience in the research that we conduct and in the format that that is presented in. So that's really where the exhibition came from. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the I'm the jury's out on creative geography. I think my own view is that is multidisciplinary rather than interdisciplinary. I think it's a question of bringing together with people a range of skills. I'm less convinced about geographers trying to be creative, right? In if some of the efforts in creative writing are anything to go by, I'm more interested in partnerships and and. And, and what that on what that can produce. I'm also slightly worried about geographers giving up on certain tried and tested geographical methods and techniques. I mean, I'm I'm kind of worried about the decline of map making in geography. Um, kind of so it, it's kind of strange in a way. In some ways, there's been a de-skilling of geography. So there's been a, a de-skilling of um, quantitative geography and of map geography and that kind of thing and so I, I haven't quite worked out my my view on it and I think in the states a lot of the a lot of the partnership are with something called community arts we don't have community arts in this country it's a term which is never used I'm not sure I mean I I tend to be quite conservative on, on, on I mean I tend to be quite experimental on the kind of things that you can do with working with people I'm less sure about geographers doing it themselves. I don't know. I think the key thing is for, for the geographers to get invited on board to the larger art programs. That would be interesting to me. Building on this discussion of where all this work fits, so this project that you did through the film, uh, how does that relate to the larger research interests that both of you have? Well, I mean, I've always had, a, uh, I've always had an interest in... Um, in issues of landscape and, and, and in a sense it arose out of directing a, a research program and actually me taking, yeah, it's not my research as it were, it's, I'm, I'm trying to showcase other people's research and frame it in a certain way. So, you know, that's, that was my particular role, but I've, all, I've always been interested in pushing the boundaries about what landscape is about and what and what environment was about. And also I wanted to frame, I think, what was seen as an environmental problem, as a landscape problem. Whereas yeah, the, the, the lens of landscape is an easier one to deal with questions of creativity and human agency than sometimes and then sometimes the term uh, environment is. But I mean it fits into your know, long career of looking at you know, what landscape meanings are. And it was just an opportunity for me to be involved in different kinds of making. But, you know, I've always written picture books, you know, even, even university press books. I, as I said earlier in the interview, I, I, I see a continuity between a really well-made, well-designed, illustrated book, high academic content, and an exhibition and a film. And I've also done exhibition catalogues. So I think it seems to be something that geographers should be doing absolutely instinctively and naturally, and not of, not thinking of it as creative necessarily. <laughs> it, it should be something that they should do as a matter of course. Yeah, should I just say something about the work that I'm doing now, um, which is a 
working with Georgina Enfield, also at Nottingham, on a project on extreme weather in the UK, looking very much from a historical perspective. So I'm in the archive looking for um, records of extreme weather in various places. And I think that it does have a lot of connections to the film in terms of themes, um, kind of the importance of looking locally and reculturing kind of global climate discourses. So again, we're kind of getting the value, trying to enhance the value or demonstrate the value of the arts and humanities approaches to looking at weather and climate. So that's definitely followed through, as has the kind of the wish to create publicly accessible research. We're building up a database of extreme weather, which has involved trying to acquire some new some new skills in database design um, and hopefully in some mapping elements as well. We might also look to put together a short exhibition or, you know, who knows, maybe an, an animation or a, a film linked to some educational resources that will be working on translating the archival materials into these new forms. We're also still working with um, non-academic partner organisations, so I think that will really shape some of the outputs that I go on to be involved in. I think my my other feeling is that a lot of um, cultural geography has become increasingly theoretically arcane and specialist, to the point I think that a member of the public pick, picking up a a kind of journal art and culture would really find it difficult. Mm. And and I I have a real concern about uh, you know before we worry about writing creatively, I think we should start writing clearly yeah. and accessibly. And I think that's certainly what script writing in a film forces you to do. And it, and it worries me that, that certain kinds of geography have become so Mandarin uh, in, in their phraseology and have also become so, so verbal. I mean, I, the other thing is that, I, I don't know whether you, anyone else has noticed this, is that, is that often you pick up a, a you know, kind of cultural geography article and it's just reams and reams and reams of writing, unrelieved by any map or <laughs> illustration or anything. So, again, this may be purely a kind of uh, Corsic UK perspective. I, I think, yeah, there, there's a real issue of translating uh, cultural geography into a more public context. And landscape seems to me always itself to be a kind of community in which various academics can speak to each other. The film has three different kinds of academics, even though they may all come across as being geographical. And uh, also it's a language that the public, I think, instinctively understands, whereas a lot of the language of space and place and effect and whatever, I'm not sure what kind of public traction that has at all. Picking up on that theme and and when Lucy was talking about her work, she was uh, talking about, you know, the outputs and being able to demonstrate impact. You alluded to this earlier, but it seems like that the challenge there for people working more in the humanities or maybe the qualitative social sciences would be would be greater, I'm assuming, than for people who are doing more quantitative type work or work that seems to directly impact questions of policy, for example. And how are you addressing that challenge in the kinds of work that you do, which seems more on that humanities, interpretive, social science side of things. Yeah, I think you're right. It is a challenge definitely to to evidence the impact anyway. But I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, us 
we've really enjoyed working with these groups of people and it's kind of maybe thinking a bit differently about about the impact you know working we're not going to change everyone's everyone who watches the film isn't going to have their lives changed by it but just getting them to think a bit differently and to thinking more about the influence that we can have on on our partner organizations and how they might engage with academics for example but yeah it's very difficult to evidence it's a real struggle uh i mean i'm on a national body called the National Ecosystem Survey, which is mainly scientists and policymakers uh, representing the arts and humanities. And it's very, very difficult to get heard. Sometimes in meetings I go and then I have, I, I have to keep repeating what I've said before. I mean, I think the question you raise is an interesting one, is that a lot of work in this area is aspirational. But I think you know, the, the actual effect, I mean, a lot of research programs now demand you have a scientist or a humanities person kind of involved in some way. I just wish some of our uh, <coughs> scientific colleagues would just take, take things on board a bit more because, I mean, I think the opportunity, I mean, geography seems to me a perfect bridge building discipline in which, you know, it happens. And so I can... It's okay with physical geographers, I find often, but sometimes with uh, with some environmental scientists, it's it's very very difficult to to, to get a kind of a, a good critical conversation going. And and every I mean, people I've spoken to in North America have the same kind of problem, where environmental humanities is a much more developed field, and in yeah, and some kinds of environmental humanities end up as just a you know, a new field of the humanities, <laughs> rather than being, uh, you know, effectively engaged with the environment. So it's it's an ongoing process. But I think producing films like this, uh, you know, the idea is is, is just to make make people think about about ways forward. I mean, it seems paradoxically in some ways that the kind of openness of the concept of landscape that that's a term of everyday language that people can start to think through kind of lends itself to not having immediate impacts that you can demonstrate. Whereas if you're speaking more from a traditional scientific viewpoint with charts and graphs and data, that there's maybe more of a tendency to just sort of look at that, take it on face value from a public perspective, or just ignore it altogether. But that somehow those that kind of data is more comforting, familiar, as providing some definitive answer to some question. It seems like a strange sort of relationship where it may be that this kind of work is open and accessible to a public in a way that more scientific kinds of research might not be, but it's it, you can't do anything with that as easily in terms of demonstrating your effect on people's, you know, how they think about the world or their consciousness, in part because it's already more open. Yeah, yeah, and, and also because the fact if somebody lives in a certain place, right? Yeah, there is a sense that they have an authority to speak. The thing with charts and everything else is that the form of representation is, you know, is immediately professionally expert right? <laughs> and given to you. But if you have landscape as your frame, there is a kind of sense that the number of legitimate voices are, mu- are much greater, in- including, I mean, you know, the voices of people long dead. I mean, there is a kind of sense that 
all landscapes are the product of, of generations. And, and I think we were interested in that too, is to try to move public engagement beyond the way that particular people now feel about something to the way that generations long past, their values have informed the landscapes that, in a sense, we all inherit and inhabit. And so our responsibility may not just be to the here and now. There may be a much longer-term cultural commitment uh, to a place. So, you know, I, I, I'm always trying to move the kind of view of public participation away from vox pop opinion polls and how people feel about this to a, a much more historical sense of, of what the landscape is and what our obligation towards it is. So mm. a sense of kind of stewardship. Yeah, I think it ties in really nicely to some of the work that I'm doing at the moment on the weather where um, although we are engaging with instrumental data, our aim really is to add the narrative accounts and to look to add that human dimension which makes the material much more engaging. So we're looking at kind of narrative accounts from letters and diaries which you know everyone just finds much more accessible and I think yeah I will take with me that kind of landscape perspective. I, I think in the film if you notice particularly in the first section also in Mike Pearson's is that there was archive photography put into the film and again the, I think the importance was is the sense that there were kind of ghosts in this landscape is that people have been here before us that we were trying to get across. So the conversation was important, but this place isn't ours to decide what to do <laughs> with it, you know. Uh, and also a lot of environmental stuff is, is forward-looking and, and often gives the impression that no one's been here before in terms of a particular issue. That old sense of landscape as a kind of palimpsest of of different histories and different voices i think we want to if that i think that message alone is important and it also kind of we the other thing we wanted to try and get away from this sort of apocalyptic view of environmental change you know god we must do something hmm. i uh, think yeah caitlin's work is interesting in that respect and that she's kind of try to work backwards when she writes. So yeah. She kind of works from the present day backwards. And then Mike's in a similar way, but you get much more a sense of cycles of change. Yeah, so that, so there's that element of uh, humanity's reflection, which, again, we wanted in the film. Because, yeah, there is a tendency among you know, even some geographers to be activists all the time. But... You know, a lot of the a lot of the important work we do, and you can call it political work, is is actually ref, is actually reflecting on what we do and what and what people have have done before us. The film itself had a kind of reflective tone, which we were trying to get across. It wasn't. It it, it didn't have that kind of terrible kind of what what are we going to do now urgency about <laughs> it. So. If that message got across, I think that was important. Um, so it sounds like in some ways film was the kind of tool of the moment in this case. But do either of you, I guess, Lucy, you alluded to maybe doing some more film work. Um, kinds of prospects do you think there are for continuing to try to work in that media? 
Yeah, um, it's definitely something that I'd be open to. You know, we had a very positive experience, I think, really, um, in making a coastal conversations. And it's really nice um, to have that kind of that film to be able to show everybody exactly what you've, what you've been doing. So that's nice. Um, but also just really worth thinking about ways that will be popular and accessible and you know you can it's nice to just yeah be able to share it with people as well i think it was really good you know for me particularly just because i i learned such a lot i'm not saying you know geographers should be made to do something like film you know but there's a sense in which you get on certain kind of productive uh, publication tracks and that kind of thing and and you know sometimes you need to be I mean, we were literally out of a comfort zone, you know, filming on location. But, you know, as I, I may have said this earlier, but, you know, I, I can't remember since school days for four or five days in a row in which basically somebody else, I mean, half as, half as old as I am, was telling me what to do all the time. <laughs> that's a real, that's, that's not something that senior professors take to very kindly. But it's a really important lesson because they know. <laughs> yeah they they can see what yeah, yeah they they can see what's coming i think you know learning about different you know different kinds of representational forms is is just is just really important and also these guys demystified film i think for us yeah you know? i think it's also really good to just get get out of the office for a whole a whole week really which you don't get to do and spend time in these places um you know, not only learning about film, but learning properly about how the researchers that are featured in it work as well. Was there anything in particular that you would be interested or excited to do differently if you picked up another film project? That's that's really tricky. We've been trying to think about this. I I, I think I wouldn't do things differently because if I thought about it, I probably wouldn't have done it at all. There <laughs> <laughs> was a sense in which in which the schedule and everything else uh, is that you just you, you just really had to, yeah, we were just taking decisions all the yeah, time. Very right? intense way of Very playing. intense. And suddenly it was done, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think the lesson is a lesson that's, I think, beyond film, is, is that if you get these kind of opportunities, you just take them. You, you, know, you just kind of you know just go with it i mean i'm not going to become i mean i could imagine that you know film aspects of my work but i don't know it was done and then suddenly it was it mm. was done there i'm not sure i have any regrets about it do you no definitely not it's good to, yeah it's good to have the new new challenges i think and, and opportunities and as you say to just yeah go for it without thinking about it too much you can view imagining change coastal conversations by going to the Tumblr page for Placing Culture, placingculture.tumblr.com, where you can also find a link to the abstract for Stephen and Lucy's article and additional information about their work. You can find episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud under my name, Sean Houston, S-H-A-U-N-H-U-S-T-O-N, and you can also keep up with the podcast on Twitter under at Placing Culture.